we continue in our devoted series, as you can see here, uh, which began last week with Pastor Levi preaching on being devoted to Christ-centered teaching, that is, uh, the Word of God. And for those of us who missed this sermon, I do highly recommend that you, that you go online and watch it, because through this series, we're, we'll be doing the five values that we as a church believe that we should be devoted to. So why don't we take a look at Acts 2, where we get these values. In verse 42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And from this, we get our, our second value for today, that is prayer. If you look at the side banner, or remember from FEC 101, we call this value faith-filled prayer. Now, the, the sermon in this series may be separate from one another, but, but that doesn't mean that these values are separate from one another. No, no. In fact, they go hand in hand, and so our devotion to the Word of God should feed into our devotion to prayer and vice versa. And all of these values should be coming together to, to, to help draw a better picture of our Christian walk, of how we should live as a church. Now, I, I chose to teach this specific value. I did have freedom to do that, and I chose this not at all because I'm, I'm a prayer warrior or, or because I love prayer. No, in fact, I chose to preach this because prayer is one of my weakest disciplines. And I want to be honest with you from the start. Because I'm, I'm no expert on prayer, and, and I don't consider myself qualified to teach about prayer. I, I really wish I was. For several years, whenever people asked me for prayer requests, I would always say, can you please pray that I would read the Bible more and, and pray more? Uh, because I desperately wanted to. And so... So why would I be standing before you today to preach about prayer? It's, it's because since I met the Lord, I knew with, with every cell of my body that, that prayer is one of the most important things that every believer should be doing. See, prayer in all its forms is the intimate interaction that we get to share with the Godhead. And it's part of the eternal life that we can be experiencing and having now. That's what prayer is. And so every believer should be desiring it. But it's not just my desire, it's, it's also God's desire. He desires that we pray. In 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul writes, Rejoice always, Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances for, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is the will of God for us, his people. And so church family, I stand before you today because I have no choice. I must pray. And if I don't, I must learn to pray. And so do all of us. 
Nobody here is exempt. And, and it's God's will that we pray, which means that the scriptures will provide teaching on how to pray. And so that's what we'll look at today. And as we read earlier, our passage comes from the book of James. And according to tradition, the author is, is James, the brother of Jesus. And this James, who became an apostle and an elder of the church in Jerusalem, is, is writing to Jewish Christians spread far and wide. Interestingly enough, James had a reputation for himself. He was known as James the Righteous, or simply as the Just. And that spoke greatly to his character and leadership. But he also had another nickname, Camel Knees. Now, assuming that all of you know what a camel is, but don't know quite what a camel's knees are like, we can try to imagine how often a camel would have to kneel on the ground to let someone get on or off, for things to be loaded and unloaded, and for the camel itself to have rest. And all this kneeling would be done on the hard ground with sand and rocks. And over time, but quickly, the camel would develop calluses or hard skin around its knees. And so back to James. He's got the knees of a camel because he's kneeling so often like a camel. He's kneeling to pray. An historian Eusebius wrote that James was in the habit of entering alone into the temple and was frequently found upon his knees begging forgiveness for the people so that his knees became hard like those of a camel in consequence of his constantly bending them in his worship of God and asking forgiveness for the people. And so we can rest assured today that we are learning from a seasoned veteran in prayer. From old camel knees himself. Now today's sermon is, is by no means an exhaustive sermon on prayer. And rather than looking at what all of scripture has to say about prayer, we'll be staying grounded in the text. And in our passage we find three different situations where prayer matters. But for each of these three circumstances, I'd like for us to keep in mind the main teaching that is... Our devotion to prayer reflects our devotion to God's will. Our devotion to prayer reflects our devotion to God's will. And so let me pray now, God, would you open our hearts now? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and show us your ways? Oh Lord, teach us how to be your people who pray. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, the book of James is a letter, and in this letter, the apostle is writing to Christians who have been going through persecution, difficulties, including financial and, and health, and, and even conflict and division within the church. In chapter 5, he's, he's actually closing out this letter by asking the people in the gathering, is anyone suffering? Has anyone here been going through a hard time? Has your heart been heavy lately for whatever reason? And if you find yourself silently agreeing, yes, that's me. 
Then listen to what James has to say. Let him pray. Now James is, is not telling us to pray to God because that's what a good Christian does. But because we need to know that even in our suffering, we are still in a living relationship with God. Now who here is an avoider when it comes to problems? I am. I remember back in college, I went to, I went to uni here in Korea. And I remember one time when I had a lunch meeting with a sambae an upperclassman, and he was called an angel because of how kind and gentle he was to everyone around him. Now, on the day of the lunch, I had overslept, and so I missed my appointment with him. Naturally, I did, I did, what, I did, I did the best of what any sensible person would do, just to avoid him. <laughs> so I went off the grid. Now, my phone was ringing, because he wanted to know what happened, right? Wouldn't you? you know, but I wasn't, I wasn't born yesterday, so I had a few tricks up my sleeves. I pulled the, I pulled the classic silence. <laughs> Oops, didn't hear your call. Um, sorry, I missed your call, buddy. And the next day, he, he, he texted me, because he was still worried. But then I pulled the... Yeah, let's not read that text message trick. Which you think is easy, but, but it's actually, you have to be pretty mindful of, of not um, clicking on every notification that you get, because you might accidentally open that text message, and then now he knows that you read the message. You know, rookie mistake. Um, the, please don't get me wrong. You know, I, if you ever find that I'm, I'm not responding, it's, it's, it's because... <laughs> It's because I'm, I'm, I'm like busy, uh, I'm resting, I, I got distracted, or you know, I, I forgot, and yeah, it's just realizing that that's, that's exactly what avoiding is. Um, but it's okay, it's okay, I'm working on it. And so two days go by, and I'm cruising. On the third day, however, we, we have the same class together, see, because we met in that class and got, have gotten to know each other and talked, and, and that's how we made lunch plans. Uh, but obviously, things don't go as planned. And so, I didn't show up in class that day. And so, my sambe went out of his way to actually talk to my friend and ask if I was okay. Now my friend said, yeah. I was talking with him and, and hanging out. And so my friend told me all of this and said, hey, look, man, you, you need to go talk with him. And so I did. I met up with him, and, and I apologized. I explained myself. And, and he, and he with the best intentions, he, he gave me a one-hour lecture on the seriousness of, of the consequences that avoidance can have in, in real life, which is exactly uh, the one-hour reason why I wanted to avoid him to begin with. <laughs> right? But, you know, I'm, I'm not... I'm not trying to put down my, my sambe, okay? He, he did the right thing, and he was extremely patient with me, okay? Extremely patient. No, no, the, the, the issue, the problem was, was with me. I wanted to avoid because I didn't want to face my mistake. And, and there are many reasons why we might avoid God in our suffering, right? Maybe, maybe we don't want to face how helpless 
and weak we are. Right? Maybe, maybe we're not good at asking for help. Maybe we forget or, or think, would God even listen? Would God even help me? And so who is this God we're supposed to turn to that James is asking us to pray to? We sing songs and call God our, our comforter, our redeemer, prince of peace, our, our rock and refuge. But do we know, have we personally met our God as our comforter? Do you know personally your creator God, untamable in power, who, who says to the raging winds, shut up, and they listen. But at the same time, he's, he's so humble and gentle that he would not cut off a blade of grass that's already bruised. He would not blow out a candle flame that's already dying. When James commands those in suffering to pray, he's not, he's not telling them to trust in the act of praying. No, he's, he's telling us to trust in the personal God who knows them. He knows your pain. He knows, that, he knows that you don't feel good right now. But God's command for us to pray in suffering is something like him saying, look, I, I know I know it's hard. I know. But can you, can you just for a moment take your eyes off of the situation and look at me? Because I love you so much and I want to tell you that, that it's okay. I'm with you. My spirit is still with you. I am still your father. And while you still might be going through suffering, my child, I promise, I promise that one day all of this, all of this will be no more. So do you trust me? The struggle that I have personally is that I know, and I've even experienced all of this, but still sometimes, Going to God, praying to him, is not the first thing or even the second thing that I do in suffering. And so I need to be reminded, even commanded, to pray. Pray, David, pray, because you need it. And now I want to be as gentle as I can when I say this, but, but isn't there something wrong with the picture if the pattern of your Christian walk has been that every time when you go through difficulty, you feel that God is so, so far away and that you feel spiritually dry. I'm not saying that it's wrong to feel that way or that we should avoid such feelings. No, because we can't help it, right? Well, what I am saying is that we do need to ask ourselves, what kind of relationship do I have with God? What kind of gospel do I believe in? If, if the tendencies for me is, is, to, is to be happier, 
is to be closer to God only when things are going good. It's the gospel that we're centered on. It doesn't, it doesn't preach that we are blessed only or mainly when circumstances are good. Now, did you know that the word blessed in the Old Testament is actually closer to meaning happy with respect to God? Not at all in the worldly sense that we may know it. The gospel doesn't preach that we'll be happy because God will give us good circumstances or more things. The gospel preaches that we'll be happy because we get to have eternal life, a fully restored relationship with God, and we get to have that now, no matter what the circumstances are. The gospel preaches that you can be Job, losing all that you have, all of your family, your health, and still be happy because God has not abandoned you. The gospel preaches that you can be a criminal, breathing your last on a cross for your sins next to the Son of God, but still find happiness as you enter into a relationship with your Savior just before you die. The gospel preaches that you can be like the apostle Paul, God forbid, having hated Jesus and even killing Christians in the name of God, but find true happiness because God has forgiven you and now chooses to use you? What message are we sending to the world if, if every time we face a difficulty, we've conditioned ourselves to first, to first take matters into our own hands to try to have control over the situation and then to ask for prayer. And even in prayer, our minds are hard at work, isn't it? Because we're thinking about what we can do to fix the problem. Right? Prayer is plan B. And so James the righteous, knowing the harm that our desires and passions can bring, he gives us very good advice on the attitude we should have. He says earlier in this letter, can we read this together? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And then later James says, cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Humble yourselves. And if you're thinking, okay, that's, that's the attitude I should have as I approach God, but what, what exactly do I pray for? Well, those who are hearing this letter read out loud in the gathering, or, or if you'd been sitting and reading this letter the whole letter in one sitting, then you'd remember that James actually opened this letter by teaching the Christians who were, who were going through suffering and, and enduring hardships and being tested in their faith, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, God who gives generously to all without reproach, 
and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And to help us know what what that wisdom from God looks like, James describes it as being first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. That's what wisdom from God looks like. And so is anyone here suffering? Then please pray. Be humble and ask boldly, boldly for wisdom because God will give you wisdom. And through prayer, may we experience for ourselves that, that wonderful relationship with God that we'll have yesterday, today, and forever. Now moving on to the second half of verse 13. By the way, what that means is that we're only in the second half of verse 13. But it's okay, guys. I'll make sure that we all get to have our dinner. So now moving on to the second half of verse 13. We see that, we see that Camel Nee James clearly has some experience in life. He knows a thing or two. He knows that not everyone in the gathering is suffering. And so then he asks, is anyone here cheerful? Is anyone here in good spirits? Not because there is no suffering, but because you're experiencing God's good blessings in your life. Because you're experiencing things in the way that God wants you to. Your mood has been lifted. Your perspective changed. And regardless of the situation, good or bad, you're able to count your circumstances as joy. And if that is you today, then, says James, sing praise. And the suffering neighbor might say, that's easy. That's easy for him to do because he's in good spirits. And then the one in good spirits will say, yeah, you're right. That is easy to do. But know that to sing praise is a command here. It's a command. Again, James isn't this micromanaging elder trying to produce cookie-cutter Christians who, who pray when they're suffering and, and sing praise when they're cheerful. No. If you remember chapter 1, the apostle wants God's people to be doers of the word, not hearers only. Not hearers only who go to church for years but haven't been transformed by the gospel and you have to, you'd have to squint to see the image of Christ in them because they haven't been doing the word. He wants the word to be in us and for us to be in the word because that was the life of Christ. And that, that my, my friends, is, is the greatest blessing that we can ever have on earth. And so if you silently recognize that you are the one in good spirits today, then know that it is precisely because it is easy to sing praise that you should be extra intentional to sing authentic praise. See, if the history in the Bible has taught us anything, it's that 
is that the faithfulness of God's people never really extends past one generation, one season. God's people have an excellent track record of not just forgetting, but also getting comfortable and proud. And if the truth of God is that all the good that we have comes from him and we don't deserve it, then the deception of the devil will work to make sure that, to try to make sure that we don't give God the praise he deserves. Because maybe, maybe, maybe God gave me this blessing because I, I was being pretty holy lately. I did keep my fast for that whole week. I have been on top of the Bible reading schedule for this year so far. And last week, you know, I, I think I really gave good advice that helped him get back on track in his faith. So yeah, I, I think I understand. I think I, I think I know why God has blessed me. It makes sense. See, the line that separates genuine praise from pride, and the line that separates God's grace from our merit is so thin that we often don't realize when we've crossed over. And so are you in good spirits today? Then sing true praise to God. Fight with all of your hearts and soul and plead with the Holy Spirit that God's blessings don't become idols, but rather humble you toward an adoration of God's grace and goodness. Fight for that. Sing praise. And so after addressing those who are suffering and those who are in good spirits, James now asks specifically, is anyone among you sick? And if they are, they are to call the elders to pray over him. Now, this, this passage has been difficult for me, so I'd love to make it a bit more simple for you. Overall, it is quite reasonable, quite reasonable to take this verse literally for the people of that time. But there are three things that we should know for context. Okay, three things. First, James isn't saying that if you woke up with a cough, call your elders. Okay, the word sick here assumes a serious physical illness. Maybe, maybe even to the point of being unable to go to the elders. So please don't call the elders if you have the flu. Don't do that to them. I got you. And second, the oil was real back then but it was more symbolic to God's anointing and consecration. There's little reason to believe that the oil was medicinal or that it still needs to be used today. Now today, many Christians substitute this with the laying on of hands. So the oil can be used, it's not mandatory. And lastly, I say that the oil is not mandatory because there's nothing magical about it. Even the act of prayer itself, or the, or the elders themselves are not generating 
divine power. It's, the power comes from the prayer prayed in the name of the Lord. And I didn't want to dwell on this part too long because these couple verses can be sensitive to people. But I really want to, silence, I really want to encourage our elders about the, the amazing ministry that they are a part of. See, to better understand the idea of elders here and any leader of God's people, one good place to look at is in Ezekiel 34. The whole chapter is, is a rich picture filled with bad examples. And it starts with God criticizing the shepherds or caretakers of his people for being corrupt. Look, ah, the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. And the strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. I mean, that is harsh. God is laying down his judgment on these shepherds. But then, but then, because he loves his people so much, he promises, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. And so to go back to my earlier point, the one with power, the one who saves, isn't the prayer or, or the elders, but it's, it's the God who himself who stepped down to become our shepherd. And when the elders pray in the name of the good shepherd who promised to save, then we believe that God has already fulfilled that promise, all of his promises, and he will continue to keep them. And do you, so do you see, do you see how the elders praying for the sick in James 5 paints this beautiful picture? It's a beautiful picture of God's people coming together around God's promise to save, acknowledging that yes, Yes, we are weak and broken. But God, our God, you in your mercy have made a covenant with us. And only you alone are able to keep that covenant. The elders come to the sick person because within the covenantal body of Christ, where the health of one is the health of everyone, and the sickness of one is the sickness of everyone, and as the elders representing the gathering put their faith in Jesus alone, and, and if that sick person was actually sick because of a specific sin, and through the Holy Spirit's conviction, he confesses that sin. And then the elders, the only thing that, can, that they can really do, the only thing is, is to hold on to God's power praying in the name of the one who took on their sins. And then, then James is saying here, God's people will hear once more the good news. Son, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has healed you. 
go and sin no more. And so I just want to thank our elders for being our elders. And I also want to encourage them by reminding them of what an honor it is that they are part of God's ministry of reconciliation. Well, what about the rest of us who aren't elders? What this means is is not only that we should respect and submit to our elders, but that we should also refresh our identity as God's people. See, we are in a covenant together with God. We're not just individual Christians who have, by chance, come together in this gathering, in this season of our lives in Korea. No. That's why Jesus, as he establishes the new covenant in his blood, he takes the bread and says, this is my body which is broken for you, all of you who are God's people. So take a, take a moment to slowly look around. I'm going to wait. Literally, slowly look around at the people around you. And let it sink in deeply that, that these are the people who Jesus Christ died for. It's the people around you. God doesn't see us only as individuals. He sees us as a collective. And the Father wants all of his children to be united to him. Not just individually united to him, but together. And so it's with this covenantal understanding that the Apostle James calls believers to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another so that we can continually experience God and his salvation at work. Doesn't this help us understand how the, how the Apostle Peter tells us that we are a royal priesthood? We ask for God to use us and, and for us to do his will. Well, the opportunity that's always, always there for that is that, that we get to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. We become Jesus' hands and feet as we minister to our brothers and sisters, as we share burdens as we pray for each other. That's the picture of a united family. And if the language of saving in verse 15 refers to physical healing, then the language of healing in verse 16 refers to both a physical and a spiritual healing. So what a privilege that we can be a part of God's work of healing even today through prayer. And as, and as we continue, James essentially nudges us on. Go on. Go on. You can do it. Pray. Because, because the prayer of the righteous is really, really powerful at work. So pray. Go on. 
But as he says that, it's almost as if the apostle can see us shaking our heads. And, and, and it's almost as if he hears our inner voices saying, I'm not sure if I can. I don't think that's me. It's almost as if he hears us because, because then immediately after, he gives quite the pep talk. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah? The prophet of the Old Testament? James, you can't, you can't tell us to pray in faith and then, and then bring up Elijah. But James is saying, no, 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 no. You can. You can pray like Elijah. He was just a human with flaws like you and me, depressed at times, hopeless, and self-pitying to the point of crying out, Lord, Lord, just kill me. I don't think there's anyone else out here who's serving you. I'm alone, and I don't think I can do this anymore. But Elijah was really good at one thing. Really good. See, if, if you go through his accounts in First and Second Kings, we see that he is faithful in his role as prophet, delivering God's message to people. But we also notice an almost robotic pattern about him. And it's this. Whenever the word of the Lord comes to him, telling him to do something, he gets up and does according to the word of the Lord. Again and again and again. That's what Elijah's good at. There's a cultivated obedience and reverence to the word of God. And this whole no rain and rain business in our passage today is a reference to 1 Kings when Elijah prophesies that there won't be any rain until he says so. And so there was no rain for three years. And then God told Elijah that he would send rain again, and that happens but I'm so thankful that the Apostle James gives us a fuller picture of Elijah's prayer life because if we combine what James is saying here with the accounts in 1 Kings, then what we get, what we get is, is a snapshot of prayer of faith, a snapshot of the prayer of the righteous. It's interesting that James mentions that Elijah prays for no rain because that's not recorded in 1 Kings. In 1 Kings, it doesn't say either that, that God first told Elijah that there wouldn't be rain anymore. And so why on earth is Elijah praying for there to be no rain? Why does he take the initiative to do that? It's because he knew God's promises. See, when God had made a covenant with the Israelites, they were to worship him alone and no other. And God also promised a list of curses as punishments that if they were ever to turn from him, there would be these punishments. And, and one of them was drought, no rain. And so Elijah is actually praying for the rain to stop on his own people, he's praying for God to activate a promised punishment. 
Now, did God stop the rains because Elijah was praying for it or because he had promised a long time ago? Think about that. And later, in the third year of no rain, God does tell Elijah first that the rains will finally come, and then Elijah prays fervently for the rain to come. You know, have, you, have you ever gotten so close with somebody that it's almost like you're synchronized? You're so in tune with each other that even just one look and you know how they're feeling. I only know this through movies and books, but apparently, <laughs> apparently it's a real thing. But Elijah was, was so in tune with God, so in tune with God that he knew God's intentions and promises to the point where he knew that God's people had to be punished. There was such intimacy that his prayer aligned with God's will, even the timing of it. And later when, when God spoke about the rains, Elijah knew God's intentions and prayed for God's will to happen, wanting that. I'm not just imagining an Elijah here right now. No, we know of Elijah's intimate relationship with God because, because he was able to say in 1 Kings, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand. Not everyone can say this, church family. Not everyone goes about their day with a constant conscious awareness that they are standing before the living God. See, the prayer of faith that we are called to pray seems mountainous when we think about all of the things that need to happen first in human terms. The complications, the alternatives, the, the miracles and the supernatural. But when we have an intimate relationship with God, we'll be so in tune with God's will that we'll stop thinking in human terms and start thinking in God's terms. We'll be thinking, I, I know what God's promised. I know. And what he's promised, he will do. So I'm going to pray for God's promise. I might not know the timing of it, but I'm rooting for God's promises because I'm the result of God's promise. And this growing alignment with God's will, isn't, isn't that what we see with our Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? When the first prayer, our Lord prays, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then, and then when Jesus prays a second and third time, we notice a shift in language as the son finds himself more in tune to, to God's will, to the father's will. And he, and he prays, my father, if it is not possible, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. 
And so prayer can help tune our hearts to the Father's melody. Prayer brings us to the place of intimacy with God. We don't need to see fire come down from heaven or the rains stopping and starting again for us to pray like Elijah. All we need is to know and cherish God's word, to hold on to his promises, and to be able to say, I live my life standing before you, O God. And so as we close this sermon, I'd like to ask the the praise team to come up. And again, is, is anyone suffering today? Let him be humble. And ask God for wisdom that he will give. Let him draw near to God and God will draw near. Is anyone in good spirits? Let him fight to make sure that he will give genuine praise to God who deserves it all. Is anyone really sick? Let him call the elders who will pray in faith, holding on to God's promises of of restoration and forgiveness. And is anyone burdened and repentant? And confess and pray for one another out of love in unity. And in all of this, let us seek such intimacy with God that we become so in tune with God's will through our prayers. And through that, we will, we will learn that we don't have to wait to taste heaven, church. We don't have to wait. We can pray today. Can we, can we bow our heads in prayer?